0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Shares for beginners.
1: Learning how to generate incredible fitness, wealth takes time, it takes education, and it just takes doing the fundamentals right over and over again and then keeping that fitness and wealth for a long period of time also requires you to do more of the basics the same over and over and over again and you don't have to worry about the, all the noise telling you to do anything risky or out there or, or <laughs> If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, so just avoid that. But that's the hardest thing, like delayed gratification is not something that everyone can
0: harness, it's really challenging. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners, I'm Phil Muscatello. Investing is full of sporting analogies, markets can be on a sticky wicket, we're in the fourth quarter of a bear market, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Joining me today is the Investor Education and Events Manager from the Australian Shareholders Association, Lee Gant, who has a distinguished career in investing and sports coaching. Hello, Lee. G'day, Phil. (laughs) Thanks for coming on and thanks for joining me today. Fully hydrated, I believe. (laughs) That's right. Uh, (laughs) Carved up and fully hydrated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've been uh, rushing to get enough fuel in to hopefully provide a great podcast for you. (laughs)
0: um okay and just before we get started i just wanted to do a quick shout out to a listener and i got some feedback which um, i'm just still blown away by it was so nice unfortunately it was anonymous so i can't tell you your name but you're mr 35 to 44 in wa and um, it was about the 4th of august that you left the feedback so i'm very moved and touched and thank you very much So, Lee, you've uh, recently joined, well, it's not so recent now, you've joined the association what about um, a year ago now? Is that the case?
1: Uh, A bit less than that, but yes, I've been here all of uh, 2022.
0: Yeah, and long-term listeners to the podcast will know that I do go on about the association quite a bit and what a great place it is, especially for education, of which you're in charge of now.
1: Yeah, that's right. We're steadily making way in in, uh, trying to improve, actually, what we do for education, I think, You know, the ASA is a a fantastic resource, but at the same time could be a whole lot better. And that's why I'm here, really, to find out how and what we can do to improve investor education for retail shareholders in Australia.
0: And uh, we'll mention at the end of the podcast, we've got a freemium deal going on on at the moment for listeners of this podcast. The promo code is SHARES22, but we'll repeat that again and it'll be in the episode notes. So, tell us about um, your previous career in sports coaching.
1: Well, I've got a a long career, I guess, in entrepreneurial pursuits and it could definitely be considered sport coaching. That was part Mm -hmm. of it. But I I like to think of myself perhaps a little bit more as a uh, small business owner Mm -hmm. and uh at one point, it was expressed as sport coaching. So oh, okay. I, uh, <laughs>
0: Sorry.
1: I, got the, I got the bio
0: information all wrong. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> maybe I, I'm just trying to be a little bit more humble yeah. in my approach. But yes, I'm fortunate to have worked with quite a number of professional and semi-professional athletes. And my journey is owning a couple of gyms and online coaching business before transitioning into finance. So I've had the great pleasure of being around Uh, some professional sporting teams, Olympians. And more recently, and probably what I was better known for was in the CrossFit space where I've worked with CrossFit Games athletes.
0: What was it like working with athletes? And um, we're working with them in terms of coaching and money coaching as well. Was there a bit of a crossover there?
1: Working with athletes is an incredible experience. It's not for everybody. As hard as it is to be an athlete, it's equally challenging to be a coach. My, my organisation and the way we coached, particularly me, was always to try and make someone you know, fantastic on the field, whatever sporting field they're on, but more importantly, help them become better humans. And more often than not, that turned into them being able to perform better. When someone is able to take care of their inner self, their physical expression becomes unshackled. So a lot of my work had to do with, with mindset, habits and behaviours right at the sort of base level of their lifestyle. And then physical expression and training was sort of the icing on
0: the cake. You mentioned about the focus and the discipline of these athletes and also trying to help them to become better human beings as well. I guess that part of it is is that um, a lot of these athletes have trained and done nothing but training and have very little social life for um, the bulk of their life from childhood onwards and into adulthood. Is that the case?
1: It's not always the case. There are rare exceptions for people who are just so gifted that they <laughs> can do exceedingly well even when they are very social. However, the most common case is that athletes, particularly at the semi-professional level, where you know they're not earning a lot of money, if any money at all, to follow their passion, they're so heavily spirited and passionate about what they want to do and what they want to achieve. They're so goal-driven that it's not a sacrifice to not have a social life. It's really aligned with who they are as a person to put that time and energy into achieving sporting success. Not everyone makes it. In fact, very few really achieve their highest or biggest, most audacious goals that I worked with. And that doesn't mean the others weren't happy with the outcome either. Everyone wants to be a winner, but at the end of the day, there's only one winner. So,
0: so <laughs> that so means there, was, every- <laughs> there wasn't any bronze medal syndrome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, sure, there's a, there's disappointment when you don't achieve your big goal. Yeah. But big picture, I think, and, and long term, I hope that most of them will reflect you know, 10, 15 years down the track and, mm. and know that the processes that they put in to get to where they got to transcended into the rest of their lives and has allowed them to achieve success in other areas
0: i remember speaking to ted richards who was a footy player with the sydney swans and who works in the finance space now and um he was talking about some of his uh, co-players who were very young and got uh, suddenly very wealthy very quickly and ended up blowing the money um have you seen any of that kind of syndrome with with athletes and people who've made a bit of money
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you see or hear stories about particularly young professional athletes who get paid well and truly more than your average wage to to play a game to to pursue something that's at the end of the day really really fun, and they can get fall into any types of traps, you know, bad business deals, pursuing like really speculative assets to try and make a few extra dollars, and and it blows up on them, and everyone knows that. Athletic careers don't last forever and the very few that do have long careers you know still at risk of losing what their their job is every day they go out on the field.
0: You mentioned that you were very green uh, previously when you first started your first business. What was it like being thrown in the deep end?
1: Really scary? You know, I was very confident I'm I Externally, I, I present a picture of, of a lot of confidence um, <laughs> and that hides <laughs> that hides all my insecurities. <laughs> As we all do. <laughs> I, have a, I have a deep faith in my ability to learn. So, I don't mind being thrown in the deep end and perhaps putting out the perception that I know a bit more than I actually do because I'm very keen on learning. I love learning. I'll dive into any area that speaks to me and go very deep very quickly. Yes, it was extremely scary because... The business that I started, we started big. I had a great business partner that played to his strengths and I played to mine. And we started very big. Most people start particularly a brick and mortar business. They don't start as big as we did. Uh, We went all in. (laughs) And the first six months of actually being open was extremely challenging because we needed to find our feet, not only as a business, but really as who we were as operators. And the business took on many subtle changes that perhaps the clients didn't realize all of them as we found who we were as operators and where we fit in the market. And once we did, and once I figured out how to be a better leader as well, our business you know accelerated very, very quickly. So we learned to swim out of that deep end as fast as we could so that we didn't drown.
0: <laughs> Having experience as a business owner, do you find that helps in terms of being able to assess other businesses for investment purposes?
1: Absolutely. My background at university uh, was psychology. Throughout high school, I I was not a fan of mathematics at all. I much prefer artistic and creativity things. However, when you own a business, uh, you need to learn accounting very quickly (laughs) (laughs) and you, you get severely punished if you don't. So, That learning curve was steep, but I needed to go on it very quickly and uh, get ahead so that we can operate a business and everyone wants to be profitable. And it's crucial that you understand how and where profits are derived from. So, once learning to read financial statements uh, and do very basic accounting became more important to me, I was able to learn it. And now you can look at any size business as a as a shareholder with that fundamental understanding and get a clear concept of where the business is at, where it's going, and where it's been. I like to find businesses that are owner operated companies. There's a, there's a bit of synergy there between you know having been an owner operator and and then I want to invest in other great owner operators. And part of that is just having faith that they truly understand what's going on with the business.
0: Yeah, although I'm going to push back on that owner-operator thing as well because I just had this experience this week. Fortunately, I wasn't invested in them, but I was—I won't mention the company ticker—but they um, re- they delisted and went bankrupt, I think, this week. But um, and it was an owner-operated business, and it—they uh, had fantastic contracts with large software providers, large um, tech firms from around the world. But it turned out that the co-founders were paying themselves huge amounts of money and their self-interest was basically self-directed. So it can, you know, it can go both ways, I believe.
1: Absolutely. I, I think you know, going back to asking why is it so important for me to um, have learned as a, as a business owner, I had dreams of paying myself quite handsomely as a business owner <laughs> <laughs> when I first opened a business we all did. And we quickly realized that that's not the right way. So, I think, you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger talk about one of their investing tenets needs to be that it has excellent management with integrity. Munger puts it more crassly that, you know, a business needs to be able to be so good that it could be run by a monkey because one day it will be. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> so, as, as a previous business owner, I, I know what I'm looking for in my due diligence, not You know, no offense, Phil. If (laughs) if if you miss this point, but I'm looking for you know businesses that they have owner operators like myself. They don't overpay themselves. They they're looking to you know create a wonderful company for the long run. And those that overpay themselves are shooting themselves in the foot.
0: So, do you feel like you've got that ability now as a business owner to do that? You've self-assessed yourself and to see that other business owners are possibly going through that similar kind of self-assessment in how they're running the business.
1: As as an investor. It's difficult because if you're listening to earnings calls or, or reading reports, management are going to try and always put their advertising hats on. They need to go out into the world and tell everybody how great the company is. The best managers are often very frank and will be honest about a quarter or an annual performance. You have to take what they say with a grain of salt. However, you know, managers that I truly think are fantastic, or owners, or or CEOs are truly fantastic. Some that come to mind, uh, like Tom Gaynor, CEO of Markel in the in the US, they're very frank and honest, and and they they'll tell you exactly what's going on with the company, and that comes through. And I recognise that.
0: Yeah, I'd recommend listeners um, study up a bit more about Markel because they're they're kind of a mini Berkshire, aren't they?
1: Yes, indeed.
0: That's how I've heard them described. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and in fact. Um, Berkshire Hathaway did purchase a small amount of, relatively small, when we're talking
0: Berkshire, (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: a small amount of Markel last quarter. So there's definitely aligned interests there.
0: Yeah, because they focus on management, good management, good business, good accounting practices. And I think they've got an accounting background and that's really what they're looking at as the company, really, truly based on the figures themselves.
1: Yes. Yes. And, um, the CEO, Tom Gaynor, he's been there for a very long time. Mm. Uh, it, it, its main business is insurance, just like Berkshire, and they, they take their pool of funds from the insurance business to invest in private and listed companies. Mm. And uh, Mr Gaynor has a has a great track record of doing so.
0: And uh, some great reading there as well, just if you want to get off the, the Munger-Buffett route. <laughs> for sure. Ready to pop the question? Then you, well, I'm sure it wasn't as simple as that, that you went into the Motley Fool, but um, at one stage in your career, (laughs) you went to the Motley Fool. Tell us about that.
1: After selling my last business and closing down my online coaching business, I needed to take some time off and and recover. Owning small businesses and, and trying to push for growth for many years, you know, left me extremely fatigued and I had actually achieved everything I wanted to as a sport coach. And so I was left a little bit goal hungry. Throughout 2019, 2020, plenty of self-assessment and figuring out what I really wanted to do next. Investing had been something that had floated in and out of my life since I was a teenager. Very fortunate to have invested throughout that time, but very passively, And I thought it was something you just did a little bit on the side for the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, (laughs) again, it's really lucky that I had uh, my father kind of school me in um, long-term investing approaches, but you know, I didn't know that you know trading or anything else was something that people did. Really, I just thought you bought shares and left them alone for a, a long time, and then when you retire, that's what you lived off. So, very, very fortunate there. However, once I had the free time away from small business, I found myself getting more and more interested in reading about great investors and learning more about investing as a career. And suddenly I found myself with with a goal of making it a full-time job and uh, the opportunity came along at the Motley Fool and I swung the bat and uh, went all in and was fortunate to get a role there as an analyst and writer, which was a great place to start a career in
0: investing. So I'm assuming that your dad was from that generation, pre-ETF where there wasn't immediate diversification available from an ETF, although maybe there would have been LICs. Was he the kind of person that would get the old stock certificate and put it away in the drawer? Yes, he was. Yes.
1: And uh, it's all uh, been, I think, a master plan of his to just perform this inception on me. (laughs) to be coming in An investor. One of my fondest memories is sitting with the AFR and when all the stock prices were printed in the paper and getting out a ruler and finding companies that I understood or knew about Mm. Telstra, Commonwealth Bank, and chatting about the share price changes over time. (laughs) And, you know, I was a teenager. So, now I look back, you know, closing in on 40 and thinking, wow, that's lucky. (laughs) Not many people get to do that. So, yes, he, he would... He had a pretty concentrated portfolio of individual businesses that he just held for a really long time, and and it's worked magic.
0: So your education and learning at Modley Fool, I'm assuming accelerated as well. Were there any key things that you learned there?
1: Oh, I learnt a lot. It's really hard to distill it down into a short conversation. Of course, and just and give I us one or, one or two. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think the first skill I learnt was actually to assess businesses faster. It was like drinking through a fire hose, uh, when I started there, being across many services at the Motley Fool, my stock universe was greatly expanded, not just locally, but internationally. And working with quite different analysts from Kevin Gandia to Drew Flowers to Chris Copley, they all have different styles, different strengths, and could teach me different things. I learned more about different ways to value different companies, different characteristics to look in you know, smaller companies versus You know, maybe larger blue chips, being able to condense that down and communicate it in a simple way to perhaps someone that isn't an analyst, anyone to become a better investor for sure. It's just simplifying complex ideas. is a wonderful skill to have.
0: Let's get back to talking about the sporting analogies. And of course, the master, Warren Buffett, says that the best investment you can make is an investment in yourself or something to that effect, I'm paraphrasing here. Because, you know, a lot of investors, they come into the market thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to make a ton of money straight away, especially after Robin Hood and all the GameStop and crypto that's been going on over the last couple of years. But then it comes down to the people who are going to be serious about it are going to be serious about education. And it's a bit like an athlete as well. It's basically going in, doing the same thing, doing the laps every day, doing the reps every day. Um, What are your thoughts on that?
1: There's so many analogies that transcend fitness and sport to investing. If someone's looking to change how they are physically, you can see really similar traps that people fall into when they are trying to make money quickly. When we hear about meme stocks, crypto and any other speculative asset where someone somewhere has made huge returns in a really short period of time. It sounds like a shortcut. Oh, that's easy. I can take that. And it's it's kind of the same with fitness. So stepping away from athletes, general population people, they have come to me and said, you know, I want to achieve this body shape or this fat loss or this incredible fitness level. And I want to do it really quickly. And the answer is you just can't. I'm sure you can jump into a a short-term challenge or try a fad diet and get a little result very quickly but it's not going to be sustainable. It's the same as winning the lottery. There's plenty of stories where people have won the lottery and then blow it all quickly because they haven't earned it and they don't know how to keep it. Learning how to generate incredible fitness, wealth, takes time, it takes education, and it just takes doing the fundamentals right over and over again. And then keeping that fitness and wealth for a long period of time also requires you to do more of the basics, the same over and over and over again. And you don't have to worry about all the noise telling you to do anything risky or out there or or (laughs) if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So just avoid that. But that's the hardest thing. Like delayed gratification is not something that everyone can harness. It's really challenging for most people. And, And once you can connect it perhaps with something deep inside you know, your goals or, or, or your personality, then it becomes e- easier to do. But uh, yeah, sticking to the basics, like getting eight hours of sleep, going for a walk every day, eating less than you need if you need to lose body fat, drink water, <laughs> smile, see the sun. These are the things that build, you know, incredible health, not crazy six-week challenges, just like dollar-cost averaging, you know, spending less than you earn. These are really easy ways that you can build wealth over a long period of time.
0: Your dad, you mentioned, had a very concentrated portfolio and your own investment style is like that as well. Tell us about your concentrated portfolio and how you invest personally.
1: Yes, well, I've gone through quite a few different evolutions of investing. as a, It's an exp- exploration uh, process and it's still evolving too because I learn more about who I am and what suits my personality. So what I'm doing now is different to what I was doing two years ago. So I don't want it to sound like I'm (laughs) a guru who only invests in a handful of stocks. I'm Mm. far from that. But uh, after being more diversified for quite some time, I'm I'm getting more and more concentrated. So, you know, Joel Greenblatt has explained very well in, in one of his books about how Diversification beyond 20 stocks, the benefits uh, are not that great. You know, somewhere between 15 and 20 in terms of holdings is ideal for diversification. I just don't have that many good ideas. Like <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got 24 holdings and probably 15 are really, really good ideas, or I at least think so. <laughs> mm. And the next 10 uh need more research. I I think they're good ideas, but they're smaller holdings and, and I'm not ready to make them bigger yet. And I, I'm looking for wonderful companies. Uh, you know, I have a, quite an extensive checklist that would uh, tell me if a company in my mind is wonderful or not. And I want to get them at a, at a reasonable price. The, the market's been offering us you know, different prices over the last year for the same businesses. And uh, sometimes those prices are great and uh, sometimes they're exuberant. So I'm just patiently waiting for, for a good price.
0: What are a couple of the columns in your checklist?
1: I'm heavily influenced by people like Warren Buffett, Guy Speer, Charlie Munger, Monish Pabrai. They all come from this same school of thought about what a wonderful business is. First it needs to be in my circle of competence. So that I don't understand every industry and I'm not passionate or willing to learn about every industry as well. So things like biomed, like really advanced technology, like AI and such, it doesn't really fall into my wheelhouse. So it's not very simple for me to understand. So if it's too complex, that immediately goes in my too hard basket. I, I, I like companies like insurance businesses. We've already mentioned Markel. I own another company, WR Berkeley, again, an insurance company that takes its float and premium money and invests it elsewhere. These things I understand. I understand simple consumer-facing businesses as well. If you understand where the revenue comes from, how they make sales, how it will grow, then it's easy to analyse the business. It needs to be in a growing industry, not a dying industry, so that there's a market for these companies to expand in. It needs to have wonderful management. You can understand that from simple metrics like return on invested capital. Perhaps growing equity is something as well that I look for. So, you can see how it starts to expand quite quickly. Mm-hmm. I could keep going.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like you're almost trying to uh, make the best decision possible, and the the more metrics that you've got, which add up, and you get a tick, and a tick, and a tick, and a tick. I guess it, that's more how it confirms your belief in the particular business.
1: Indeed, I also like to think of it from the other direction, in, invert the story. So, if I was to buy an ETF. For example, something that tracked the ASX 200 or 300. Not every business in the ASX 200 or 300 is a wonderful business. So if we think of it the other way, what are the things I want to avoid? Right? What are the characteristics in a business I don't want to own? I wouldn't want to be a part owner in a business that is highly leveraged, that doesn't have a track record of growing revenue, and expanding margins. If the share market didn't exist, and I was fortunate to have a pool of money and I needed to buy some individual businesses to grow my capital over time, I'm not going to buy the uh, coffee shop that's losing money and highly leveraged and can't open more coffee shops in the
0: future. I mean, that's a great thing about it. And and, uh, I think a lot of investors still forget that we're talking about businesses here and that um, you can become a part owner of this business and the management and the staff of that business are all working on your behalf.
1: Here's another element that I learnt from The Motley Fool and and something that Scott Phillips is really big on inside the team is not referring to a business by its ticker code. We're we're talking about a real business here with real people. Uh, We don't want to rent a a three or four letter code. We we want to be part owners in, in a real company.
0: Yeah, but just feels good, you know, you just say the code, you know, you just say the ticket code and you, you feel more professional about it. But I think that's a great, um, yeah, great from Scott saying that, that you want to say the name of the business, don't you?
1: Exactly. I, I, I'm not a fan of saying the ticket code. I like to be able to walk around and if people ask me what do I do, I can say, well, I'm a part owner in... Disney, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it sounds a lot better than it really is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially with fractional shares these days. (laughs) Okay, well, let's get back to the Shareholders Association. How are you finding working at the association and meeting the members?
1: It's fantastic. We had our investor conference a couple of months ago where it was just wonderful to get back to -to face-to-face after a couple of years of of really being focused online and to meet hundreds of shareholders and and hear their stories and and what they want to learn as well. It's, It's just superb.
0: Okay. So at the Shareholders Association, what changes are being implemented in the education space?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting time because I think there's a rise in shareholder education broadly in the market from beginners or people just wanting to get started in investing. There's so many new avenues from free content in great podcasts uh, like this one, YouTube channels, even free online courses. There's so much out there. And then for other markets, perhaps the wealth builders and the self-funded retirees, which is a lot of the... ASA's member base. My goal is really to understand that persona of, of the ASA member. What, what do they really want to learn? Uh, I think we can work with others that already have fantastic courses available and help guide them and almost be like a Sherpa on their investing journey and carry some of the weight of, oh, what do I need to know? What do I need to learn? Where do I start? And that's what really I'm looking to do is just you know, put a map in front of them and say, hey, here, here's where you are. Here's where you want to go and this is the way forward.
0: And I'd uh, commend listeners to go to a members meeting as well, which you can just turn up at, um, you know, even if you are not a member. For me, it's one of the great experiences of going to these member meetings and talking to some of the the wiser, more mature investors and see how they got to their position where they are. Because, you know, getting to that age... (laughs) Doesn't take as long as you think it will. <laughs> it's
1: it's an incredible resource. There's hmm. there's over fifty uh, local member meetings across Australia from the A. S. A. And inside of those meetings, there's a minute community that's part of a larger community, and so many stories and so much to learn from others. What a great way to learn about investing. Go hear the war stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's really important to hear everyone's mistakes. No one's got a perfect track record, so that I would be my first recommendation. And then go and listen to the different takes on what's going on out there and uh, you will come away a better investor for sure.
0: And they've got such long memories as well. <laughs> I just always remember, you know, they talk about some sort of manager and then someone will pipe up and say, yes, but back in the nineties, he managed this particular company. And, you know, back in the 2000s, she made a mess of that company. And <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and how handy is that you know I, I i didn't know about uh what ceos were doing when i was in primary school so as people can tell me what um managers were doing in the 90s that's fantastic
0: okay so like we'd like to share with listeners that we've got um a premium offer for listeners they can join it's uh, till the end of december is that correct this offer goes for that's right. Okay. And the promo code is shares22. And you can get a year's free membership and experience the Shareholders Association as we both have as being a wonderful institution that we both love and respect.
1: Absolutely. We hope uh, some more listeners join us. Okay,
0: Lee Gant, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Phil. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for
1: Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your
0: personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?